Hello and welcome to a Tuesday episode of the State of the Nova Nation. If you are listening to this right now, you are either one, celebrating the Eagles Super Bowl, two, recovering from said celebrations of the Eagles Super Bowl, or three, you never stopped at all, and you're going to take a little break to listen to the State of the Nova Nation podcast. It's a good time to be alive if you're in Philadelphia. Even if you're not an Eagles fan, I think there's a party that's hyped to see that the Patriots lost, especially to see Tom Brady on the ground like that. That's probably going to be an iconic meme for a while. My condolences go out to my friends in Boston. Aside from that, I mean, let's be honest, Tom Brady has five rings. He, he can live. He can live without it. Let, let Philadelphia have one. Let Philadelphia have one. Yeah, I guess so. No, I, I kind of resigned myself to the fact that I, I had a feeling that Eagles were going to win. I even picked them on the show last week. Uh, congratulations to the city of Philadelphia. Congratulations to the fans who waited a long time for this. I know I hated on the Eagles a couple weeks ago, but, you know, I do know a lot of Eagles fans. I'm happy for them. And really, my hatred really just stems from a few people who kind of hopped on the bandwagon who have never watched football before in their lives and were celebrating in their Carson Wentz jerseys that still had the tag on them. But, you know, that's okay. Each their own. You know, I'm happy for people I know who are Eagles fans. I'm happy for the listeners who are longtime Eagles fans. Congratulations. Go crazy. Have some fun. It's a great time to be alive if you're an Eagles fan. I'm honestly convinced that the mayor decided to hold off the parade until Thursday just so the the city could just continue celebrating for another 48 hours. Yeah, you gotta, yeah. I, I when I heard the the parade was on Thursday, I was like, that that seems awfully late. Usually these things are like a quick turnaround. I, I guess they gotta, I don't even know what are they gonna do. I guess they gotta clean up the city first. They gotta get everyone out of the streets. I'm sure people are gonna be just hanging out in the streets night in and night out and just keep on going. Yeah, the scene looked absolutely crazy. I saw a few snaps stories and just a few social media posts for some friends down in the area, and it just looked like a great time. Looked like a great time to be on Broad Street. They've waited a very long time for this moment, and they deserve every second to enjoy it. I thought it was one of the better Super Bowl games that we've seen in a while. Granted, I mean, if you love defense, it probably wasn't your thing, seeing that there was only one punt. But it was just a great game overall, back and forth. Never really was decided until the very end. It was very close throughout the whole way. The Eagles just came up with the big play at the end with that strip sack, and because of that, they'll be taking home the Lombardi Trophy. Shouts out to Philly. Shouts out to Meek Mill. Shouts out to Jay Wright, who unfortunately had to sit at home, couldn't be there in Minneapolis to enjoy the Super Bowl live. Seton Hall owes him an apology. I think it's just a pretty fun time. Obviously, the, you think back to the one time where you got to champagne and campaign in the streets, and that was down Lancaster Ave. It looked even crazier than that. And right now, I'm thinking about that one Eagles fan that I saw a few months ago. And I asked him when the Eagles were just so hot and they weren't losing and they were on that crazy win streak and Carson Wentz was QB1. I was like, oh, how do you get to enjoy this? And he's like, we don't. We're just waiting for the letdown. I hope he's jumping for joy, drinking some adult beverages, champagneing and campaigning because there was no letdown this time around. There certainly wasn't, and for a moment, you almost thought there would be. Brady having the ball down five, over two minutes, two timeouts, with the two-minute warning about to come up. It looked predestined for another classic Tom Brady drive, and I was pretty hyped on that. I was like, I want to see this guy do it again. This is great. But as I think we both predicted in last week's episode, we, we predict the Patriots would have a chance to at least tie or take the lead, but the Eagles would make a defensive spot, stop to win the game, and that's exactly what they did. They got the strip sack, put them up eight with the ensuing field goal, and then the failed Hail Mary at the end. Yeah, it, again, it, it's just so funny how the Eagles defense didn't get to him once all game, and then the last meaningful drive, they get to him, and for a strip sack nonetheless. And it, you just had that feeling. It just reminded me so so much of those Giants-Patriots Super Bowls where it just seemed like you know the Giants might not be getting the Brady, but it just seemed that they always get that clutch sack on the third down or, or on fourth down, whatever it may be, and it just played out the same way. Yeah, I'll say the only letdowns, or I guess there were a couple letdowns from Sunday. One, what was up with the kicking and all these weird things? Like, my Super Bowl pool 
with the boxes. It was just completely screwed up. There were so many times where I thought I was going to get paid, cash out, and then some crazy shenanigans happen, and then all of a sudden I'm one number off. That killed my vibe. And two, the commentators, I was so disappointed in Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth. They were so pro-Patriots the whole time. There was just no neutrality. There was just no level-headedness. It was just like a Tom Brady love fest. When he made mistakes, it was like, oh, he meant to do that on purpose. He was trying to put in the, the ball in the spot where only his guys can get it. Or, oh, the, the Eagles, I don't know if that's a touchdown. It didn't look like he was a runner. I mean, I don't know what else they wanted. He caught the ball, took like three, four steps, lunged into the end zone, broke the plane. I don't know how, how that was a question. It, it just felt very anti-Eagles, very pro-Patriots, and I was a little disappointed in that. I wouldn't say that. I I thought, well, Val Michaels and Chris Collinsworth, I think they're a great broadcasting tandem. I think Collinsworth can get annoying every once in a while, but I thought they did a good job announcing the game, and I don't blame them for thinking that uh, this wasn't a touchdown, that wasn't a touchdown. No one knows what a touchdown is anymore. No one knows what a catch is anymore. I have to say that the, the Ertz one was eerily similar to that Jesse James play with the Steelers in week 15 against the Patriots, but I do believe Ertz established himself as a runner. However, the one to that running back in the back, I forget his name. It was sorry, with C. I don't remember. The one touchdown to the running back in the back of the end zone. I thought he, he caught it, bobbled it, then caught it again. And by the time he reestablished possession, he only had one foot in. But they said the call, they called it a touchdown on the field and said it stands. I mean, at that point, I mean, it is what it is. Brady still put up 500 freaking yards and his defense couldn't get him one stop. And it's amazing. This is probably the best Super Bowl Tom Brady has ever played. And oh, you can make an argument that defense for Tom Brady has won him the past couple Super Bowls, probably at least four of the five, or at least kept a minute to allow him to make the place to win it. This time, he, he literally carried the team and he still couldn't do it. It just shows that you need some form of defense on the other side of the ball. And I, I've been clamoring for that as a Packer fan for years just because Aaron Rodgers would torch this entire freaking league with some resemblance of a defense. But it just shows that even the greatest of all time can throw for 500 yards and still lose. Yeah, you're right. I shouldn't group up about Michaels and Collinsworth. I usually do like them as a broadcasting tandem, but I felt that Collinsworth was the bigger proponent of not being neutral. Yeah, yeah no, I agree. But I thought, yeah, I love Miles Michaels. He's he's a great guy. But, you know, putting that all aside, it was a pretty great weekend or it was a pretty great few days away while we were gone off the air. There was a lot of nice things that happened between the Super Bowl Sunday and the Eagles getting the dub and then the Wildcats just smashing Seton Hall at the end of their Sunday matinee game as a little appetizer before the Super Bowl. And then last night we had a Nova grad, class of 2017, Sean Udicious, come in and just light up the other two contestants in jeopardy, and hopefully he can win another one tonight. We'll see. Yeah, I usually I usually watch Jeopardy. We my family isn't home. We'll, we'll have it on TiVo or recording, whatever it is, whatever you want to call it now. So yeah, I, I made a special point on Monday night to watch, and he did a heck of a job. And now obviously he'll be back. I think he won twenty thousand dollars last night. It's just absolutely mind boggling. And then he could pay off the student debts. Yeah, he was locked in from the very get-go. He was fantastic. Just felt like yesterday he was in Michael Bradley's sports journalism class telling me about MMA and Bellator. And then all of a sudden I see on my Twitter timeline that he was going to be on last night. And I was like, oh, I definitely got to make time for this, make sure I catch it. And he was fantastic. Maybe get a chance to extend his winning streak. I think they said or statistically he has about a 60 to 70% chance to repeat and that the average Jeopardy winner goes on for at least three days. So hopefully he passes that average mark. But putting Jeopardy aside, and we look at the Wells Fargo Center, it was in action for two nights while we were gone Thursday night against Creighton, and then Sunday afternoon against the Seton Hall Pirates. Let's first talk about that Creighton game. Maybe not as much to talk about compared to the Seton Hall game, but Villanova did win 98-78. to They did get to tie a program record 19 made three-pointers, it's a mark that they made against St. Joe's earlier this year. Just looking at the box score, everyone in the starting five made at least three trays. Everyone was just locked in from beyond the arc, and then you have Colin Gillespie come in off the bench and add a couple more to the count. Villanova just pretty much had the game. It was a little competitive in the very beginning, but then once Villanova pulled away, they just left the Blue Jays in the dust. No chance for a comeback there. 
Looking at Villanova's starting five, everyone eclipsed double figures. Mikhail Bridges with 21 and Jalen Brunson with 19 to lead Villanova. And then on the Creighton side, you had Marcus Foster continue that streak of 20-point games. And then Kyrie Thomas added 12 points off of a perfect five for five. Those guys are great, but it just wasn't enough to pull off an upset in the Wells Fargo Center. And no raggy bombs this time around. It was a moment of redemption. What stood out to you on that Thursday night game against the Blue Jays? Yeah, this game seems like it was forever ago, man. I'm glad we got the redemption for for the raggy bomb game. It, it tied the school record for threes on top of getting our 7,000th program three. I think Bridges hit it early in the game. So nice little fun fact there. I mean, obviously what stuck out was three-point shooting. Just absolutely on fire. Like you mentioned, this game was a little competitive early on. You're starting to like worry, like, come on, guys, really? We pick up a little. And the next thing you know, you blinked, and then they were on a major run, pull away, outscoring Creighton 49-34 to 34 in the first half, and then just never looked back, kind of coasted their way through for the rest of the game. Bridges looked good. Mari looked good. I mean, the whole starting lineup looked pretty good, to be honest. So, yeah, I was pretty happy with the performance all around. And then the patented bench mod makes an appearance late in the game, and Kennedy, Matt Kennedy was actually able to sink a basket, so good for them. And it would have been hilarious because they were trying at the end if, if one of the bench mob guys, I think Leibig and Grace attempted a three at the end, it would have been great for them to hit it to break the school program record for three-pointers made. That that would have been absolutely nuts. That would have been like the time when Henry Lowe made the game winner in Hoops Mania 2015. That three-pointer to win it all. It was like a nice um, omen. <laughs> yes, a, a omen two years in advance, yes. <laughs> yeah, there's not really much to say or even complain about. I thought Nova was just fantastic. They took care of the ball. They shot the lights out. Everyone pretty much had a pretty solid game. No one really seemed out of it. It was just another one of those, all right, Villanova's hot. There's not much you can do. You just got to sit back and just take it. Marcus Foster just wasn't enough. Kyrie Thomas just wasn't enough. And although they had three other guys in double figures, it just never really felt like Creighton was in it once Villanova stressfully into double figures. And then before you know it, it was up to 20. It's just one of those games where you felt that once Nova went on any sort of run, that they wouldn't look back. And, you know, like you mentioned Foster dropped 20. Like, okay, that's fine. But he went one of five from deep, so he really wasn't able to do that much damage. I think they played all right defensively. They limited Creighton to 6 of 18 from deep. I know the defense has been a little bit of a weak point so far, and I know a little. Uh, some people are concerned. But I thought this was an okay game. I thought Creighton kind of got some buckets in garbage time to maybe bump up that score a little bit. I thought they did perfectly okay being low on some depth midseason and, and against a pretty good offensive team in Creighton. Yep, it was another one of those nice, complete team performances. And then they brought that to the table once again on Sunday when they took on the Seton Hall Pirates, and Villanova won that pretty comfortably. It was closely contested for a while until Villanova pulled away in the second half, but they went on to win 92-76. to And as we talked about last time, there was one key matchup to watch for, it was Angel Delgado, the senior, the experienced senior, Big East Player of the Year contender. Probably is going to be first team All-Big East by the time the season's over, without a doubt. Maybe sneak on some All-American list. But it was between him and then the young redshirt freshman, Omari Spellman. First season playing for the Wildcats. First time he gets to go up against who many consider to be the best center in the Big East. And boy, did he make him look bad. Omari Spellman, I thought, won that matchup. Yeah, Angel Delgado had 18 points, 9 rebounds, and was 9 for 15. But I'll be honest, it didn't even feel like that. I was a little surprised to see Delgado get up there, but Spellman just took it to him all game long. 26 points, 11 boards, 3 blocks, 9 for 12 on the floor, including 6 three-pointers. Omari was definitely freed, and he was unleashed and he definitely took it to Delgado, and he was hyped the whole way. I'm sure he had a lot to say, maybe off the record, about Delgado. But he was fantastic. And the rest of the team was fantastic, too. Another game where Villanova starting five all hit double digits with Brunson right behind Spellman with 21 points. He also had six dimes. DiVincenzo hit a career-high seven assists, and he also had 13 points. Mikael Bridges, after a little bit of a slow start, Came back to finish with 17 and had a monster posterizer on Seton Hall's Mamu Kelashvili. Try to say that one five times fast. 
But on the Seton Hall side, Desi Rodriguez had 20 points, Miles Powell with 17, and Carrington had 10. Chris, what did you think about this game? This is pretty much, as you said, Villanova's at home, and when they're at home against the Pirates, it's not a problem. They won by double digits, although it was a little close for about a halfway through the game or two-thirds of the game. Once Villanova got it going, they just pulled away, and it was no doubt after that. Yeah, I mean, they did start off slow, similar to the Creighton game. The slow starts, they suck, obviously. They're obviously able to correct them. I do think a lot has to do with them being at home and just being comfortable. So it kind of concerns me if they get off to a slow start on the road or in a neutral court, but that's neither here nor there. Let's just talk about this game. I mean, like you said, it's, it's all about Omari Spellman. Absolutely hyped from the beginning, played great defense on Delgado, and then to stretch out the floor on him, and to nail six threes with basically Delgado as his main defender was just an absolutely fantastic sight to see. He was firing on all cylinders, and I wanted him to shoot. He had at least another three or four opportunities where he could have attempted a three but decided to pass up. I was like, dude, just shoot. Just keep going. Like You're on fire. Like This is your game. This is all you. He, he played a fantastic game both ways. And, you know, I want to bring up someone who didn't really do all that much, only had five points, but I thought he played a fantastic game game and that's the mere cosby roundtree i thought he played a fantastic defensive game on on delgado i think his first i think it was the first two defensive series he basically forced delgado into a horrific shot and then yeah he had some freshman plays where he was got lost on a switch and let delgado go to the net there was also one time i think delgado just beat him with a nice post move but uh, honestly for as the both of the freshmen to go up against delgado and basically make them make him he was a factor but he wasn't as big as a factor as he could have been it was just fantastic and i was really really impressed and because my hatred for delgado is is very high (laughs) it was just that much more pleasant to see jalen had a great game obviously 21 points six to 12 from the field six dimes dante even chipped in with seven dimes he had that nice pass to bridges on the on that crazy dunk bridges you know he had 17 points he, his shot the other night was, or the other day, was really off. He Everything was short. I think the ankle was kind of hurting him or foot, whatever the actual injury is, was hurting him a little bit that game, more so than usual. Eastman, he had that nasty fall, and that was that was a little concerning. I was like, come on, you can't, you can't lose another guy, can we? But he ended up coming back in a big three when Seton Hall was trying to call its way back in, and then that three basically ended any threat of that. And then Omari's double-double, good enough for Big East freshman of the week so yeah i wasn't too happy with the fact that this game was close for a good chunk of it but i really wasn't concerned at all i had a feeling that they they would just pull away at the end and like clockwork they they did yeah great call to give dcr some props definitely deserved it he was phenomenal i thought he played his role very well coming off the bench 13 solid minutes five points five boards i thought he played very well and delgado was just not a happy camper it's one thing when you get beat but it's another thing when two freshmen are not making you look very good as the experienced senior. And he was not able to flex those guns at any point on Sunday. Villanova just took it to the Pirates. I will say, though, I don't think it was so much as a slow start on Villanova's part as much as it was, you know, Seton Hall playing very well. I think this is a team that just mat- matches up very well against Nova. And they're going to be the thorn on Nova's side. I would love to see how this game looks when it goes back to the Rock and potentially, who knows, maybe the Big East tournament. Jay Wright has admitted that this team can give them problems. But one thing's for sure, next year, though, this team is going to be very depleted without its senior core. Another thing, too, with Bridges, he was very slow to start. He was only 2 for 10 on the floor, finished the game 4 for 4. So how he got 17, I was a little surprised to see that went that high because he definitely didn't feel that way. He did have that monster poster riser with the stare down. Love the stare down. Always love it when they show that edginess. And overall for Villanova, first game against these guys, and it was just a great way to go out there, get that W on Super Bowl Sunday, and at the very end, just close out very strong with a 51-point second half. No problems with the way that Villanova played, honestly, outside of the fact that, you know, in the beginning there was a few little defensive hitches and misses, but I will have, I did have a problem with the officiating when they decided to go with a cop-out of giving Miles Powell and Dante DiVincenzo double technicals instead of clearly giving Powell 
just attacked for his actions. Try. You don't even have to be a fan to see this. DiVincenzo didn't do anything, was just trying to go back, get pushed, and his reaction was walk away and go towards the sidelines, not get back into Powell's face, instigate some more, and then maybe push back. I don't know how you could call double technical on that. I don't like when refs do it. I think it's a cop-out. I think it's pretty lazy. I think usually in events like this, there is usually one guy that's at fault. It would be another question altogether if, let's say, Powell pushed him and then Dante pushed him back or threw a punch. Then, of course, yeah, getting the double technical. But this is something that the refs have done all throughout college basketball sometimes where I feel like they call the double tech when it's unnecessary, when there's a clear person to blame. And instead of doing that, they just put on both guys. Yeah, we were going back and forth during game time when this was going on. We're like, they, they got to give a technical to Powell, right? And then and then you're like, no, nah, they're definitely going to do a double tech. And we were saying you nailed it. It was like, I, that doesn't even, uh, I don't even think of double techs because I'm just like, just give the guy who actually, you have replay. You see who's committing the act. Why don't you give him the technical? Didn't really understand that. And it was just, I was just like, come on, like Seton Hall, like, all right, you're, you're starting to lose now. Now you got like gooning up. Can you just keep your hands to yourself? I, I don't get it. It's always, always Seton Hall. They always have to do something. They always got to hit someone. Chill. Like if you're going to lose, lose. Like no, no need to get in a fight, especially on the road. Like you're not going to win that fight. And you're going to put your, you're going to handicap your team even more by trying to punch someone. Like, come on. That, that was just getting, that's just ridiculous. Also, I felt at that point, Seton Hall wasn't even out of it yet. Like, it was still a pretty manageable game. There was still a good amount of time left. Like, there was no reason to just really go down that route. And if they did call the tech on Powell, just him, and let's say Villanova makes the two free throws and then gets the ball back, and then potentially makes another basket to make it a four or five point swing, now you've really cost your team the game because there's no way what looked like a manageable nine-point deficit is now all, all of a sudden 14 or 15. And then how do you climb back from that? It was pretty dumb. I mean, we'll say what we want about Willard, but that was just kind of poor player management or just kind of poor player discipline there. But I guess Powell didn't really have that bad of a game himself with 17 points, 6 of 13, three threes. But I thought it was big when Desi Rodriguez and Kadeem Carrington were both in a little bit of foul trouble. And it was nice when Carrington was not hitting his shots. I thought that was very good for Nova because Delgado and Rodriguez were getting theirs. And if all four of these guys were clicking, that would have been a little more of a harder fight. But ultimately, great game by the Cats. Once again, with the whole starting five getting at least 10 points or more. Wasn't as great as a three-point shooting display, but it was if your name was Amari Spellman. That is a signature performance for the redshirt freshman, and I hope that this is only the beginning of what's to come and that this only feeds them as we come down the stretch and into March and for the postseason and all that. I hope that this is one of those games where, you know, against a big-name proven center, a senior, you're the young guy, you're looking to prove yourself, and he went out there and he did it. We knew that they all, all eyes were going to be on them, youth versus experience. And we saw youth take it to him all game long. You know, you see him ha- have like a bad stretch of games every now and then. And, you know, it's not up against teams that really have a star center and all. But then you see him get hyped, like literally right off the tip that he's going up against Delgado and he's absolutely taking it to him. I think he, he has the ability to go to a next level. I think he has a switch that he can just turn on. And I think it depends on the competition. And I think it depends on the importance of the game. So I'm really looking forward to what he can do, like you said, like later on in tournament and into March when he starts to face some teams that have big time centers that being said i would like to see him replicate this performance on the road against seton hall when that time eventually comes if you can do this again against delgado on the road that would be even more impressive and i think that'll speak to the testament of how quickly he's developed even with the redshirt here so with villanova taking care of business they improve to 22 and one overall and nine and one in biggie's play very impressive the fact that they've only lost once so far And because of that, they're still atop of the AP and coaches polls, sitting there at number one for the fifth week in a row. If they make it through one more week at number one, that'll actually be a new program record for most consecutive weeks spent at number one in the AP and coaches polls. And when Villanova has St. John's and Butler, hopefully they'll be able to do it. Do you see them surpassing that five-week mark? Do you think that they can make it all the way? I mean, we'll talk about the Butler game later, and we'll talk about St. John's in a little bit. But how do you see this playing out, and how do you feel to see Villanova back on top? 
yeah, I kind of forgot that they had the potential to tie tie the school record and now this week break it. And I think it falls perfectly for them. I mean, you have two home games, two very, very winnable home games. St. John's, I know they just had the big win against Duke that you got to witness in person. Absolutely fantastic game. Probably my favorite game to watch so far this year that wasn't a Villanova game. And you got Butler at home, who, yes, Butler did beat Villanova at the Pavilion last year and has beaten Villanova this year and has beaten Villanova the past three times. But that being said, I, I think Villanova should should handle business there. And with that, that means they should, should set the record unless Virginia somehow deals 30 first place votes with whoever they play this week. I'm not exactly sure. I think that they'll take care of business. We'll preview Butler next time, but before we get to St. John's, I just feel like this is just such an impressive run that Villanova's on. And I'll be honest with you, if you asked me at the beginning of this season, did you think Villanova would be in a position where not only would it go five straight weeks at number one, but be in a position where it can actually set a new program mark? I would have told you you were crazy. Or I would have said, uh, I think they'll be good, but maybe not that good. No, they've surpassed all expectations and they've actually proven, hey, we're here to stay. We're for real, and if not only if does the Big East Road go through us, but we're going to look to be a problem come later in March, too. Yeah, I was, I was kind of in the same boat as you. I, I wasn't too high at the beginning of the year on this team. I thought there were some glaring issues. I thought I honestly thought offense was going to be the most pressing issue, but now here we are, and they probably have one of the best offenses ever in the Kent Palm era. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been an impressive run so far. This team has exceeded expectations. So I, I, hopefully they keep this up. I mean, this week they certainly should. Then you got the gauntlet week where you're on the road against the four toughest teams in the Big East, outside of yourselves, obviously. So it's gonna be it's gonna be a tough one coming up. But but this week they hopefully they take care of business and set a school record for uh, being tops in the nation. So tomorrow night at 7 p.m. the Wildcats will host the St. John's Red Storm. As you mentioned. They're coming in hot. They're coming in high off an upset win of Duke, which, in my opinion, I think that that was the game of the year so far, or at least that was my favorite game to watch this season. St. John's just played perfectly, I thought. We've mentioned how defense has been their MO. They play very well defensively. The way that they can generate turnovers, get steals, protect the rim, just rack up blocks is very impressive, and they have such a great defensive squad to do it between Shamori Pons, who's just an all-everything. He's a great scorer, great defender, just gets into passing lanes, picks your pocket, and you have Tariq Owens in the front court. Not only was their defense on point against Duke, forcing 18 Blue Devil turnovers, but their offense was right there. And we've mentioned how, you know, this team has just always been so close to getting that win. The win has just been so elusive, and even though it wasn't Big East play, they finally got to see that three-point shot drop. They shot almost 45% from deep, and just offensively, they were right there, toe-to-toe with Duke, responding. And even at one point, they led by 11 on the Blue Devils. And it was very impressive. I was very impressed with the way that they played, and I thought that that game on last Saturday was the true indicator of what the St. John's team is capable of. And even though it took them <laughs> the beginning of February to finally reach that point or to finally tap into that potential, I'm sure if you're Chris Mullen, or I I think he actually said this at the press conference. It was like, where was this before? Like, why did it take us this long to get there? Um, You got to be thinking like, oh, well, you know, even though it took us a while, it's great to be there. And if St. John's can just heat up and keep this winning going, and maybe this is the spark they need to really flip a switch and take their game to that high level that, a lot of people saw them doing going into the season. I know an 11 Big East record is very hard to climb out. I'm not going to say that, you know, they're going to come back, win out, and you know maybe be like a top or like a top half seed in the Big East tournament. I'm not saying that's going to happen. But if they string together a few wins or they get hot going into March, I don't know if this is a team that you'd want to see opening round in the Big East tournament quarterfinals as like a low seed matchup who won the playing game to get in there because Madison Square Garden is their home court. And maybe they can look to upset a few teams if this is truly the start. But with that said, I think they're going to have to hold off that upset bug because I don't think Jay Wright's going to be surprised. I don't think he's going to get ambushed. And I don't think the Wildcats will get ambushed when they host the Red Storm tomorrow night. And yeah, I don't think so either. The fact that this is at Villanova makes me very not concerned for this game at all. If this was at St. John's, I might be a little worried. I mean, because think about it. You're coming off a season-defining win 
against Duke. Then you get Villanova coming in. You get the fourth best team in the nation and number one team in the nation all within a week. That's pretty big time. Kind of sounds like us from a, a few years ago. If this was at St. John's, this would be a completely different mindset. And I think the Johnnies would be riding that high. And I think they would probably have upset on the mind. And I'm not saying that they don't come for this game either. But I think Villanova will just do what they got to do, execute correctly. They'll, they'll be fine. Yeah, definitely. The key still le- rests in Shimori Pons. He's just such a talented point guard who can just score in many different ways. And he was shooting 20% going into the game, but he was locked in from beyond the arc. And he really looked like that shooter that he was known for being his freshman season, being that complete scorer. But aside from him, Bashir Ahmed hit a few timely threes. Tariq Owens was so effective off the pick and roll. They just executed so well on offense. And it was Interesting to see what that team could look like when that offensive side of the court matches their intensity on D. And what I also was impressed with was, yes, Madison Square Garden is technically their home arena, or it's technically like a second home to them, but that was a road game. There, Or or I guess a neutral court game. There were more Duke fans in attendance. And sidebar, I don't think 95% of them has set foot in Durham or has been in the state of North Carolina. But there were more Duke fans. They were loud. Granted, they were quiet for a lot of the second half because St. John's was just taking it to them. But there were more Dukies in attendance than there were Red Storm fans. And even with all that, the Red Storm was able to rally. It looked like they were going to choke away yet another game. But they were able to close it out. Shamor Pons dropped 33. He had 37 against Nova. He's had some big-time games against big-time teams. We know what he's capable of. He's one of those quick guards that can get to the rim, pull up, score in a variety of crafty ways. I don't think that Villanova's going to let him do that again, but they shouldn't sleep on the three-point line because that was a big reason why that the Red Storm was able to beat the Blue Devils. And not only that, that defense is not going to make it easy. And we saw how much Villanova struggled against it at Madison Square Garden. The Red Storm was right there all along. Couldn't make the baskets or the big shots to help them overtake Nova, but that defense was as good as top 10 countries out there. I am expecting another big game for Dante DiVincenzo. He is a Red Storm killer. Sign me up. If there's a prop bet out there and you don't take the over 20 points, I think you're going to lose some money. I think he's going to hit 20 again, and I think he's going to lead the Cats to another victory. And I think we're going to see a much better performance this time around now that Villanova's seen the Red Storm defense before. I think we're going to see a much better performance all around from the other guys. Some of the guys who were a little quiet the first time around. Yeah, I almost forgot Dante was a red storm killer. Yeah, expect a big game from him. And I, I hope Omari is able to big, build off a, a big game against – a big week, really, against Creighton and Seton Hall. So really hoping for those two to light up the scoreboard. Hoping Jalen continues his impressive Bob Cousy award-worthy season. So – yeah, I think they shouldn't. They really shouldn't struggle in this. And if they do, I'd be a little bit concerned going down the road. But I think they'll be fine. Definitely. And not only was Brunson added to the Kuzi semifinalist list, but he was also named to the Wooden Award Top 20. So he's, he's going to be on a bunch of reward lists. Keep an eye out for that, especially as they start narrowing them down as we get closer to March and closer to the end of the season. I think Villanova wins this one. I don't think – I like you said, they're at home, so they're going to be comfortable Wednesday night. And I'm sure Jay Wright's preaching to them like, hey, forget the records. Throw it out the window. This is a team that just beat Duke. Do not get caught making the same mistakes that Duke did, turning the ball over, not playing together as a team, not locking down on defense, just not executing well. And I don't think that Villanova is going to get caught off guard this time around, and I think Villanova wins this one by 15, even a dozen, a dozen or more, a dozen or more. Not completely fair. I, I think Jay's going to have them prepared, obviously. I think the fact that this team just isn't all freshmen, I think that they won't let make the same mistakes Duke did, and I think that's a problem that Coach K has down at Duke. And he, he really put his team on blast in the press conference, didn't he? I mean, you were there. I mean, that, that was pretty brutal. It was my first ever Coach K press conference. And, man, he gets grumpy when they lose. <laughs> he Not only did he put his team on blast, he put a few reporters on blast. Like, there was this one guy criticizing the defensive sets that Coach K had them in. Like, oh, like, why would you do that? And Coach K just flat out just interrupted the guy and was just like, 
that is wrong. That is not how that happened. It was this, this, and this. And then you had a few reporters like nodding in agreement because, I mean, what else are you going to do? Get roasted yourself. And he just put this guy on blast, corrected him, basically gave him his point of view. And he, yeah, he put his team on blast. He, I think he, the quote for me was, we played basketball for the first 32 minutes that was not worthy of this program. Ooh, <laughs> that's bad. <laughs> that, that's, that's real bad. Good for him, though. At least he calls, he calls it as it is. At least he admits it. Like if he was just like up there just giving out the good old cliche coach talk, I, I would be uh, pretty upset as a Duke fan. And he, he does that too with the team of freshmen. Like you don't you don't know how they would respond to that. I mean, I guess he could he obviously knows his team by now, but if you do that at the beginning of the year, I mean I don't know, maybe they won't react as well and perform as well. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if players actually take stake in what coaches say in their press conference. Yeah, no, that that was good on him to actually call out his team and maybe that'll give them a little jolt. Not that I want them to do good. Also, the fact that they didn't drop in the polls that much also upset me, but here we are. Yeah, I'll never understand what pollsters see, but I'm sure what Coach K said in the press conference was probably the softer version of what he said in the huddle and or in the locker room because he was just talking about yelling at five blank faces that were just disinterested for about 30 minutes of the 40 minutes of that game. But you just got to tip your hats off to Shamori Ponds and the Red Storm because they played fantastic that Saturday. I don't think that they're going to dial up a similar performance, but we'll tune in tomorrow night at 7 p.m. The game will be on the CBS Sports Network if you can't make it to the Wells Fargo Center. So we'll be keeping on for that. I despise that channel. I feel like it's always hard to find. I always go to Fox Sports 1 by default, and then I go to ESPN, and then I go to Fox, the actual Fox. But I always forget about CBS Sports Network. We always get a few games there every year. I think we play Butler on there. I, mean, I feel like we played a lot of games there this year. I don't know. It's been a weird schedule TV-wise. Usually it's just Fox Sports pretty much the entire year until you get a weird weird away game, and then you get the CBS Sports Network. But now it's been like ESPN a few for a handful, and then CBS Sports for a handful, and then Fox Sports for a handful, and now it's back to CBS Sports. And, and also trickle in Fox Business Network too. So... We're just all over the map. We'll have Kelly Smith there covering for VU Hoops tomorrow night. So if you can't get in front of a TV, feel free to always check out the at VU Hoops live Twitter handle. You'll get minute by minute, second by second updates of the action on Wednesday night. But now let's shift over to the women's side where Kayla Smith was covering the game on Saturday. The Lenovo hosted Georgetown at Jake Nevin Fieldhouse. And just like the last time Villanova took on Georgetown, earlier this season, it was on the road. They held off a last-second Georgetown rally. They did the same on Saturday afternoon at Jake Nevin Fieldhouse. And apparently, Harry Preda put his team on blast. But fortunately for him and his cats, they were able to hold off the Hoyas once again to win 68-67. to Very close game. Mary Gadeka led the Cats with 17 points off the bench, she also had nine rebounds. Kelly Jacot had 13, four boards, and four assists. And Alex Lewin chipped in 14 points and nine boards. And then on the Georgetown side, you had Michaela Venson scoring 23 points at game high. She was locked in from deep, five for nine. Then you had Deanna White with 21 points, shot 10 of 26 on the floor. And then Cynthia Petke down low. Making her presence known, 12 points, 14 boards. Chris, what stuck out to you about this game? And whew, it's just another one of those like tight games. Got a little nervous. Harry Preto was not happy at halftime, but Villanova was able to squeeze it out to improve to 18 and 5 and 8 and 4 in the Big East. What did you think about Saturday afternoon? How did you think the Lady Cats did? Did you feel like it could have been a little better? Did you side with Harry Preto? Or do you just tip your hat off and give Georgetown some credit? I feel like the performance could have been better. I mean, you you beat you did beat Georgetown on the road, which was obviously a good thing. And then you got them at home. You're kind of hoping to kind of expand upon that way. You're not trying to regress a, a bit against the same team. But, I mean, you still won. So, I mean, you got to be happy about that. But they can't be too happy with their performance on the boards. Allowing Petkey to get 14 boards, six of the offensive variety. You, you allowed Yasmin Belk to get five of her own on the offensive Boards. I mean, they just got outworked down low, and on top, I mean, as a result, 
Georgetown was able to fire off 75 shots compared to Villanova's 49. Now, granted, Georgetown only hit 29 of the 75, so Villanova did play good defense when they needed to. But with that being said, to allow such a high volume against a better team, that is, that is not going to fly. You're not going to squeak out a one-point win at home against a better team like that. That's just asking – that's flirting with disaster for sure. But, you know, you look at the box score – 11 to 20 from the free throw line. That sticks out to me for Villanova. Not the best performance there, but down the stretch, they hit, I believe it was four or six from the line. So good enough to, to give them, keep the lead and to give them the victory. Yeah, there are some negatives, but I thought they played another decent enough team game. Offensively, they shot over 50% from the field, seven to 16 from deep. I thought they played well offensively and defensively, they didn't play that bad. I think it's just the fact that Georgetown outworked them down low on the boards. And the fact that they were able to just fire off such a high volume of shots that they kept this game competitive. I, otherwise, I thought Villanova played an A-OK game. Peretta was absolutely unhappy with the free throw performance. Something that's been a little worrisome for them throughout this whole season when it comes to the closing games or trying to get back into games, just not really executing at the free throw line and not getting there enough. But they did get there 20 times. Just only made 11 of them, which is not good enough. As you mentioned, they did make the key ones at the end, but it definitely could have been better. And yeah, how often do you see a team get more offensive rebounds than defensive rebounds while dominating your opponent on the boards? And that's exactly what Georgetown did with 23 of 42 rebounds coming from the offensive glass. Absolutely dominating Villanova, 42 to 34 overall. I think that, you know... You played great in the first half. I think you would like to see them do better, but I, I think Georgetown just gives Villanova fits. The Hoyas aren't exactly that great. They're 10 and 12 overall. They're 5 and 7 in the Big East, but they just seem to be that thorn in Villanova's side. I'm hoping, you know, when it comes to March, when it comes to the Big East tournament, that this is a team that the Wildcats do not get to see in the early rounds of the Big East tournament. Because, it's, as we all know, it's hard to beat a team three times, especially when they give you a rumble for the first two. So, ideally, let's just not draw the Hoyas or have someone else take them out before you get there. Yeah, you know what? I was thinking the exact same thing. Hopefully, the, the seeding falls a certain way where they avoid them because Georgetown's played two close games against them. God only knows what's going to happen in the third time. You know how hard it is that for teams to beat another team three times in a season. And let alone when the first two games you barely squeaked by, that third game, it would just, it would probably favor Georgetown in that regard. I know Villanova is the much superior team, talent wise and record wise. So, but that would still be a very concerning game on a neutral court. The Lady Cats still resume action until the weekend. So, we're going to preview their two games against St. John's and Seton Hall this Thursday. So, for now, we're going to diverge our attention, look at the mailbag, pop it open. We got a bunch of questions to go through. As always, you can tweet us at S-O-N-N-Pod with anything you want us to talk about, or you can leave it in the comments section of a podcast thread on VUHoops.com, and it'll find its way to us. You can ask us anything, and we'll discuss it on the show. First up, we got a bunch of questions from Jerry Quinn. This first set of questions were from last Thursday. We didn't get to get to this because I was on a rush to go to a meeting. So we're going to backtrack a little bit, and then we're going to get to his newer questions, but First question is, what Villanova men's basketball player has overachieved so far, and what player has underachieved so far this season? You, you want to take this first? Because I actually got to think about this. This is a pretty tough question. I guess, um, see, it's hard, because if you asked me this question about a month ago, I feel like I would have had clearer answers, but then you have certain people step up, and it's like, Woof. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> Not exactly. a problem anymore. <laughs> right. I mean, can we say bridges like i would say yeah i would say overachieved the overachieved question would i would definitely say bridges just coming into the season we knew him as his defensive talents defensive specialist wingspan condor pterodactyl whatever nickname you want to call him you knew that when it came to that side of the court he was going to lock you down he was probably one of the top two defenders in the league him and Kyrie thomas as they shared the biggies player of the year defensive player of the year trophy last season along with josh hart but you see him take a leap on offense and you see that he's just as dangerous as he is on the defensive side of the court. And then you realize, whoa, this is a great two-way player. He's making an even bigger splash in the NBA conversation, I'm sure, compared to what 
sort of talks were going on before going in. And you see him just completely developing into another contributor that can score, that can hit you with a three-pointer, that can drive inside. How many posterizers has he had this season? I think about three or four, maybe five. Fantastic on that end. I would definitely put him as the overachieved, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you there. But the thing is, overachieved kind of implies that it's a not-so-good player performing beyond their expectations that's not sustainable. Like, I think we should rephrase the term overachieved a bit. Maybe just say, just maybe exceeding expectations a bit. I, I, I think Bridges is totally capable of maintaining this play throughout his entire professional career. So it, I wouldn't say he's an overachiever, but I'd say he's definitely taken the next step. Okay, then, yeah. See, my, the other person I was thinking about for this question was maybe Omari Spellman, in the sense that we've seen... You know, Nova big men under Jay Wright, especially when they're young, like we knew that there was a lot of hype surrounding him. And then that hype had to be put in a box and placed into the corner of the closet because the NCAA decided to NCAA and just sit him out all last season. And even then, you know, when he's coming back, Jay Wright was like, all right, like, I'll be honest with you guys. He's only as good as maybe like a second or third year Daniel Ochefu. That's where I'd put him. And then it's like, what does that mean? Because we know that Chef was absolutely fantastic senior year. And overall, his growth from being that raw product freshman year to senior year, great leaps and strides every season. But it never really felt like Chef was dominant until his senior season. So then it was like, you know, what what, what kind of player can Omar Spellman be if that's what you're putting him as going into the season? And I think maybe I'm still riding the buzz left from his Seton Hall performance. But he's done it before against Temple, and he's done it a couple other times. Granted, his season didn't really start too hot, especially at Battle for Atlantis. He really hit a few roadblocks there. But I felt, I feel like he's, you know, if you're going to say that the expectation was sophomore or junior chef, I think he surpassed that. Granted, they're two totally different types of players because he can actually knock down the three. But just look at his stats and look at the way that he impacts the floor. This is definitely a big upgrade from last season. Apologies to Dale Reynolds. No offense to him. He is my boy. He keeps it real. But I would say that if you want to look at overachieve, it's probably if you're not if you're not going to say Bridges, I guess you could say Omari. Yeah, no, I I'd agree with you there, Dan. Yeah. It's hard. Like everyone's saying, okay. like so well. Like you wouldn't say they're overachieving. Yeah, exactly. Like it. The, it really depends on how you want to look at the word overachieve. Because, right. like you said, it could just be you know that player that you isn't actually that good, but they're just playing well at a rate that's like unsustainable. Or you can look at it as you know expectations going into the season and how have they just surpassed it in general. Right, and and I think with that regard, I think Omari fits that bill, and we. You talked about it plenty of times, and I thought you brought up a good point with the Ochefu comparison and just big men in Jay's system. They take a little bit longer to develop, but it seems like Amari's hitting strides and showing more flashes in the pan than Chef did, at least early on. So, yeah, I, I'd have to agree with you there. And then on the flip side, wait, under... wait, wait, sorry. One more name to add oh, to the overachieve section. Oh, go Amir for it. Cosby Roundtree. Weren't a, yeah. a lot of people saying he was just basically a Daryl Reynolds? I yeah, think yeah. he's ahead of Daryl Reynolds' freshman, sophomore, and junior year. Yeah, I mean, when he came in, we were, we kept going back and forth about it off air that he's basically Daryl Reynolds 2.0, but he's he's provided a much more offensive-minded game than that, and I think he's provided just about the same, maybe just about the same on the defensive end as well. Yes, he's prone to the freshman lapses where he would miss a switch kind of like how he did in C against Ian Hall. But, I mean, that just comes with the learning process. And if he can become just a better offensive Daryl Reynolds, I mean, that's that's pretty good for, for what, your second best recruit coming in from this year. So, hey, I'll take it. As for the underachieved section, I think you can miss me there. Because at first, you could say Eric Pascal, but now he's hitting his threes, and now it's like, whoa, <laughs> this is what this is what we were talking about. This is it. And uh, I guess, you know, Jermaine Samuels at one point, you could even look at him as an underachieved, but then he's also a freshman, so it's like, what does that, you know, what does that mean? Yeah. I mean, I was going to say Jermaine. I was going to vote him 
in there. Yeah, yeah, he does have the broken hand, which kind of sucked because it came right as it seemed like he was putting it together. He had that solid performance off the bench against DePaul, his best outing of the season so far, and he just looked like a real basketball player. He wasn't shy. He wasn't timid. He didn't really hesitate. He just went out there and did it, came off the bench, and played well. I, I'm, I'm going to have to cop out. I don't think there's a true answer for underachieved. I think everyone's playing pretty well or yeah. like, up to expectations. Yeah, no one's really been bad. <laughs> so I, I really can't say much. I mean, I, I just, yeah, I guess Samuels would be the only one that kind of fits in there. But like you yeah, said, but the, then the you injury, have a hand injury. Yeah. Injury, and he is a freshman, so you really can't expect that much coming in. So if you had to pick one, it's him. But if, in reality, there, there, there really isn't anyone. The other question was, who are you rooting for in the Super Bowl? And we talked about that last time, and we touched upon it a little bit to start the show. These are his, some of his newer ones. The first one is, where were you when the Eagles won? I was at home, eating a pizza, drinking some adult beverages, and yeah, I was at home. Had a few people over, had some, had some family. I'll be honest, I was just like so drained from the weekend. And no one really seemed to have definite plans. And I was perfectly fine with just staying at home, ordering some pizza, getting some wings, getting some other dishes in there, some pigs in a blanket, some adult beverages. I was I was totally down to just chill and take it easy. Same here. I stayed home, just watched a little bit of the game with my parents. That was pretty much it. I There was really nothing going on. I mean, no one, like you said, no one had definitive plans. I, I felt like. Everyone I knew was either staying home or just or doing nothing, doing nothing at all. So I, it was fine. I had no issue with that either. I just wanted to stay home and not, not go out. Yeah, just had a lot of traveling over the weekend, and you know maybe if if my team was playing in there, I would probably do something or get more hype for it. But you know this was one of those Super Bowls that while it was a very great game going in, I was hoping for the Eagles that they would made it and I wanted them to win. But overall, it was just. You know, I, I didn't really – I was perfectly content with just sitting home, sitting at home. Yeah, same here. I, I wasn't that hyped for the, the game in general. just wanted the season over with. There's just been a really weird year in the NFL between all the on-field stuff with teams flipping on their heads, with teams that should have been bad being good, and then you know, all the off-field stuff. It was just the tough – and all the injuries too, the plethora of injuries to all the star players from Rodgers to Wentz. It was just a really hard year to get into. I just wanted this season over with, start anew from, God, April or end of April, beginning, no, end of May. I don't know when the draft is. It's one of those two months. But start anew in that draft, and let's let's get a full season where not everyone is uh, getting hurt. The next question, which is something I discussed with my coworkers yesterday, if you're an NFL GM, what do you do with Nick Foles next season? My one coworker, he said that he would keep him and ship Wentz. I thought that was a little crazy. I think you got to go with the guy that took you there, either got you that far, got you to that number one seed, and that's Carson Wentz. You did say he was a future. You did say he was a franchise, and I think you still hang on with him. It is Pennsylvania, after all, Carson City. But I think if when when it comes to Nick Foles, you look at Nick Foles and you say. Wherever you want to go, you let us know, and we're going to try to make you happy. We're going to try to make it happen because you deserve it. You want to go to Washington? You want to go to the Jets? You want to go to the Broncos? You let us know, and we'll make it happen. Yeah, I mean, you got you to gotta keep Wentz at this point. I mean, he's, he's on his rookie deal for a couple more years. You have a great team built around him. You can even build that team up even more with all the cap space you're going to save by not paying Wentz yet. Foles has a bigger cap hit as of right now i mean it sucks that the redskins traded for alex smith because you could have dumped Foles on them and gotten a first round they're so stupid so that would have been real nice i mean other options i guess the jets the broncos are two of the bigger ones maybe the browns if they're feeling ambitious and they don't want to go after cousins but i i don't really see those teams trading for them. maybe maybe denver i could see elway doing it but that being said let me propose this. What if the Browns came calling and they said, hey, Philly, we like to redo that trade we made with you at the beginning of the draft a couple of years ago when you guys traded up for Carson Wentz. 
How about we give you first overall this year, fourth overall this year, and next year's first? How do you say no to that if you're an Eagles fan? You keep Foles. You have the opportunity to draft Saquon Barkley and Minka Fitzpatrick. So now you're building upon an even greater defense, but they're putting Fitzpatrick in there. You get the running back of, of the future with Saquon Barkley, and you don't have to pay Ajayi or Blunt. And you get next year's first, and God knows if Wentz is going to come back fully healthy from the ACL, and the Browns can completely be browned up again and be in the top five of the draft picks, and be in the bottom five of the NFL next year, and you can get a drop, drive, draft pick. The value is, is extremely high there. Would I do it? If I'm the Eagles, it's, it's very, very tempting. And I don't know if the Browns would do it. I don't know if I think that's a severe overpayment value-wise, draft capital-wise. But, man, if, if, you, if the Browns came calling and said, hey, here's first and fourth this year, which you got to consider it. That's an intriguing conversation piece right there. Never thought of it like that. I do like Nick Foles. I will say that. I did also like him the first time he was in Philadelphia. I thought he was great. And then, obviously, his career took a little bit of a hit when he went to – Jeff Fisher's quarterback death graveyard, yeah. I guess you could say. <laughs> yes, yes, it was a graveyard. Yeah, where he takes a team, no matter if they're good or bad, makes them 8-8 eight and eight and makes the quarterback horrible. But it's, it was great to see him play well. He, I thought he was absolutely fantastic. I love that he was not scared. He was not conservative. He was making the big-time passes. He wasn't afraid to go for the big play, and he was completing a lot of those, threading some needles. I loved his play in the Super Bowl. I don't think you Jeff Hostetler him, though, or I guess you do, and you get rid of him and you stay with Phil Sims or your quarterback of the future. I think that the Eagles should tell him, look, whatever you want, we're going to make it happen. We owe you one, and we're going to make sure you're happy. You make We make a move that makes you happy, and you know both sides are just content with it because his play, Super Bowl MVP, going against Brady and the Patriots, he was fantastic. He made that Patriots defense look lost absolutely lost they look like how they did to start the season when they couldn't stop a nosebleed fantastic fantastic play by Foles. yeah he he did play well there's no denying that and super bowl mvp because of it and he has the same amount of rings and super bowl mvps as aaron Rodgers. and this is a really weird world we live in now but i think a lot has to do with doug peterson as well i think he has a great system implemented there in philly i think he has uh brass balls he had some really gutsy plays People harken back to the, the Nick Foles touchdown catch. I think the biggest play call of the game was that fourth down on the second, I guess it was their second to final drive when they were trying to burn the clock out. Well, not trying to burn the clock out. They were trying to go and at least get a field goal to take the lead. If they miss, if they don't get that first down on fourth and one, the Patriots get the ball at midfield with the lead and to, who knows what they can do. They can get a touchdown, make it eight, and I don't know if Philly's able to score after that. But I think that was a great play call on that play get the first down, and then eventually burn the clock, get the touchdown, does it Earth's touchdown for the lead. I think Peterson had just as much to do with that as, as much as Foles or anyone else did. I think he called a great game. And the fact that they brought in Brett Favre before the game, too, was really funny. I was like, wow, they're going to – what does this mean now? Nick Foles is going to throw a game-losing interception with about two minutes left. But, no, he did the exact opposite and threw a game-winning touchdown with two minutes left. Good for him. He played He played well, and he, he answered all the – the doubters and and he uh he made Jeff Fisher look like a damn fool. His last question is basketball related. Will the St. John's game on Wednesday be a close one? I was talking about this to my good friend Christian, who is a big St. John's fan, and he is with full confidence will tell you that they're gonna upset Nova tomorrow night because they're coming in hot after beating Duke. And I told him, look, let's take the rose-colored glasses off. What they did on Saturday was great. But this might just be one of those games where it's a little close. St. John's is there, and then Villanova pulls away, and then that's it. I think Villanova does take care of business, and I'm still sticking to that dozen or more victory tomorrow night. Yep, have to agree with you there. Yeah, I think they should. I don't think this should be too close for comfort, and I think maybe St. John's hangs around for a little bit, like you said. But I think Villanova pulls away and makes this uh, an easy one. Last question is from Anthony. He wants to know, how did Eugene work for the Eagles if he is a Giants fan? Yes, please well, explain, Eugene. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
That's a great question, and I'll be honest, that was something that I thoroughly mulled over going into the interview stages during my time with the Eagles junior year. Um, whew. Uh, let's see. In interviews, I joked and said I was a Jets fan, and then to fellow co-workers, I said I grew up in Philadelphia. <laughs> um, I saw what happens to Giant fans at Lincoln Financial Field. I was there when the Eagles spanked the Giants 28 to 0 on Sunday night football. I was there on the sidelines and I got to see Eli and I got to see Victor Cruz and all them and that was when his knee shattered. And that was scary. But yeah, to answer your question, um series of cover stories, my cover was almost blown when obviously me being the idiot I am and not really knowing much about Philadelphia when talking to a coworker I said, oh, yeah, you know, I'm from Philadelphia, man. I, I grew up loving the Eagles my whole life since I was, like, five. He's like, oh, what part of Philadelphia did you grow up in? And me not knowing any neighborhood other than that West Philadelphia was bad because I watched the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air religiously when I was in middle school and high school. I said, oh, you know, the, the middle. I grew up in the middle. <laughs> like an idiot, I said I grew up in the middle. What does that mean? What does that even mean? Why? Why? <laughs> so how did you play that off? There's no way they bought that. They looked at me weird, and thankfully, someone came in and told us to like the next thing to do. <laughs> I was Ooh, saved wow. by the boss. Saved by the supervisor. <laughs> That's bad. <laughs> the middle. <laughs> you couldn't just throw out any other cardinal direction. Like you know, West is bad I, I, from the I song. Think this was bad. So I was like. I told like, I don't know. I don't know. You like, even could have said West and they might have even believed you. They wouldn't know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I did say I went to Villanova and they're like, oh, what part of Philly did you grow up with? The, oh, middle. the middle. Yeah, good job, dude. Be proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they also couldn't tell from you crying over Victor Cruz's injury that you were a, a Giants fan. I kept a stone face. I guess it just goes from the whole media days to no cheering in the press box and all that. But it's funny because the person that exposed me was actually a Giants fan. She knew. I don't know how she knew, but she told me, I can tell you're a Giants fan. You're not an Eagles fan. You just work for this organization, but you don't actually like them. And I was like, uh, whoa, complete mind reader after talking to me for about 10 minutes. But yeah, I did. There was no one around when I revealed my true identity. That's okay. We all knew you were just working for them to try to sabotage them until the giant, or the, until the Eagles whip the Giants, and then you're like, "Well, there's really no point in doing this anymore." So I'm only going to work for them for a year. Well, it was the Chip Kelly era, so they sabotaged themselves. Ah, uh, but then they recovered very quickly. And who's holding the Lombardi Trophy this year? It is them. Right. Fly Eagles, fly E A G L E S Eagles. I learned the whole fight song and everything. I got so hyped. I'll be honest. Like, I got hyped for the fight song. Me and my boy Will, I don't know where he is now. I hope he's doing well. But we got hyped when the fight song went on. You know, because I grew up in the middle and I cheered for the Eagles. <laughs> you grew up in the middle, yeah. yeah. Whenever I hear that song, I feel like the owner in Major League, whenever Charlie Sheen comes out to Wild Thing, I, I, I hate this song. It's so, I didn't even know it existed until we went out, uh, when was it, uh, Halloween? Or no, homecoming weekend, and then they started doing it at the bar. I was like, man, I forgot this chant existed. Man, I don't, I don't like it. But it, it, it is, it, it does get you hyped, I guess. It's a nice little rally cry. I, I almost wanted to ask what this was, because I honestly didn't know it existed. <laughs> but then I was like, this is a good way to get yourself fired and not look like a true fan. <laughs> yeah, that would have been bad, but you know, you grew up in the middle. So you, you know all about it, right? Yeah, you know, Randall Cunningham was my boy. Reggie White. Hey, stop. Well, he's I guess Packer. he was. Yeah, he was mostly he was mostly Packers. I'll, I'll give you that. He was a, he, I think he actually played more for the Eagles, to be honest, but he won a Super Bowl with Packers, so he's Packers. Who else was my boy? Yeah, you know. Randall Cunningham. Randall Cunningham, QB <laughs> Eagles and Tecmo Super Bowl. Yes, great, great, great video game player. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening to the State of the Nova Nation podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes, Podomatic, Apple Podcasts, and on Google Play. 
Also, please check back on the website at vuhoops.com. So we got the updates. We got the men's and women's basketball news, previews, everything you need to know about the Wildcats as we go deeper into the season and inch closer to March. You can also follow VU Hoops on Twitter and on Instagram at VU Hoops. And you can follow me, Eugene Rapay, at Rapay 5 And you can follow me, Chris Stanzial, at The Stansman on Twitter. Nova Nation, happy Tuesday to all Eagles fans. Hope you're still celebrating and hope you all recover pretty well. And hopefully, now that's all basketball from here on out, we can get this dub on Wednesday. Keep it moving and keep it rolling for the rest of the regular season.